the afterglow of Burning Man has faded and has been replaced with the sinking feeling that next month I need to find a new place to live. Last night I woke up at 2 a.m. and didn't get back to sleep until 5 a.m. I don't get insomnia much, but whew, when those nights happen, they really, uh, they really spin you out. And it's days like today that I feel so grateful that the drug coffee exists. <laughs> My plan is that I'm going to buy a van. I talked a little bit about this on the last podcast that I did with Duncan Trussell. And I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm going to try and find a property in Topanga Canyon that I can park a big sprinter van and then I can be in LA going around California, uh, podcasting, doing film projects and, and be mobile. Um, one of the, the things that I talked about with Duncan last episode is how Burning Man really shows you where you're blocked and it shows you what's important and that that maybe the, maybe that is the afterglow that has stayed with me it's the knowledge that i love doing this podcast i love involving myself with film projects i love getting barreled with friends i love getting a few big days out at mavericks every year and none of that involves the accumulation of stuff and more often than not it's stuff that holds us back from participating in the activities that truly fulfill us. So I'm excited to uh, live a more minimalistic lifestyle in the weeks to come. And if anyone has any hookups on a big sprinter van or a property in Topanga, that's where I'm on the hunt. I'm heading back down to LA soon to get amongst it. Getting amongst it. It's so easy to to remove ourselves from uh, from the ring when we go to festivals, at least it is for me, and kind of just want to live in this fairy tale land for forever. I, I can see the appeal of being a, a career festival hopper because you don't really need to deal with the real world, and you can just kind of go from one uh, one seminar to the next, one festival to the next. But I'm getting back into it, and my guest today. Uh, also gets amongst it. She is a new LA resident as well. She moved down from Bolinas and uh, she's she's brave and she's independent and she's talented. And I really respect her for the fact that she is getting in the ring and she's getting amongst it. She is a photographer. She is an environmentalist and she splits her time between shooting campaigns and pushing environmental stories through editorial features and social uh, platforms. So you'll see her on Instagram. It probably looks like she's living the greatest life ever, and she is in many ways. But I also know um, personally from being a, a creative in one way or another that it's a lifestyle that can be lonely and it takes grit and this woman who I sat down with um, on this podcast has that grit. She has contributed to a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial with the New York Times. Uh, she has shot a story with National Geographic Adventure following John Muir's footsteps to the fastest retreating glacier in Yosemite. In addition to shooting for environmentally-minded companies like Keen, Patagonia, 
Prana and Cliff Bar. Meg is consistently in uh, the works with projects that use adventure as a way to engage people and teach them about the importance of our natural landscapes. Her passion lies in exploring humankind's relationship with the great outdoors while stepping outside of the box to be part of the greater good. I really enjoyed the conversation and be sure to get in touch with Meg if you like the, the podcast. My guests always love hearing from you. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to my website, kyle.surf. That's where you can donate to the podcast. This show is made possible by listeners like you. If you don't have money to support the podcast, there are a bunch of other ways that you can support the show uh, by taking two minutes right now and giving it a rating on Apple Podcasts, um, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you listen to it. It helps other people find the show. Sharing it with friends if you like the episode also helps get the word out. All right. Without further, further, gosh, I'm still uh, struggling with my words after Burning Man, but (laughs) I'll get them back quickly. Without further preamble, please welcome Meg Haywood Sullivan. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. It's funny, like both being new, relatively new Los Angeles residents, I find that certain information that maybe you or I have taken as pedestrian in our circle of outdoorsy types people is more special in LA circles. Definitely. Yep. We, we're in a small minority. You can be like, look up. It's a red-tailed hawk. People are like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, one of the craziest uh, uh, outdoor experiences I've ever encountered was in uh, downtown Encinitas. I was uh, walking down the street to go check the surf, and I look up at one of the traffic poles, and there is an osprey gutting a leopard shark right there, right in downtown Encinitas, and everyone's on their little phones and devices. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is full-on Nat Geo happening real-time. And uh, it's cool. You can find nature anywhere. And honestly, I've I've really enjoyed moving to the city. I was living on a little dirt road just north of San Francisco for many years. And uh, I've been impressed with still finding glimmers of the natural world in an urban environment. And it's almost a fun challenge on a daily basis to seek that out. And there is nature. I saw um, monarchs on part of their uh, migration the other day. Um, you just need to open your eyes. Yeah. Where do monarchs migrate? Uh, um, they migrate. I'm, you're not talking to an ecologist right here, uh, sadly. But I know there's a few different monarch migrations. Some of them migrate over the Sierra Nevada. And another crew of them migrate south to Mexico. And I'm assuming the ones that we're seeing around Venice area, correct me if I'm wrong, are probably headed down to Mexico. Where I grew up in Santa Cruz, uh, we would run across this field called Lighthouse Field, and is a monarch habitat. And there were certain times of the years where you could look up at the eucalyptus tree, and it would just look like a red eucalyptus tree. And then all of a sudden, you'd see all of these wings mm. flapping, and the monarchs would cover the eucalyptus trees. Yeah, and they are very particular too about which eucalyptus groves they uh, they wind up colonizing. I think it has to do with 
having a certain horseshoe shape in really? the grove. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, too bad we don't have a, an ecologist in the mix right now to tell us more. Yeah, what? Um, but you've been fascinated by the, the our natural environment for a long time now. It seems like you kind of grew up in that world. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I came to be really passionate about the outdoors through my folks. My my mom's a professional artist. And my father's a photographer, so oh, cool. I started, uh, you know, as a little, little grom road tripping around the country in our VW van with mom and dad. Did they but, work together? Uh, no, they didn't, but they got inspiration together. So we would go on these trips to the Southwest and uh, my mom would be out there painting. My dad would be out there with his camera and of course, little Meg would, you know, be picking up a camera or paints and whatnot and, and just tagging along and enjoying a enjoying the ride but honestly seeing seeing my parents so stoked on on nature and getting outside and getting off the beaten path it just really you know engraved a deep reverence for the outdoor world in me at a young age I always knew I was going to be a photographer I'm a third generation Nikon shooter really I started shooting film when I was eight got my dad's hand-me-down cameras what kind of photography uh, did he do my dad's a uh, medium and large format uh, landscape photographer oh cool so he uh, he's he's not doing as much you know today he's retiring a bit so he's you know delving into a little bit more personal work and coming out of the professional world but um my grandfather was an architect and he was a you know an amateur photographer but I inherited all his Nikon lenses and what were some of the earliest lessons that you remember him teaching you about photography oh god (laughs) I remember uh on some of these family road trips being at the dinner table and not only would he quiz me on what tip I should be uh what tip that um my folks should be paying for the bill because my dad's kind of a, a dork, but uh, like math nerd. But he'd also quiz me about S-stop and ISO and, and what the differences were. And if I wanted to change a stop, like which way would you go on the, you know, um, break that down for people. Break that down for people who aren't photographers. Okay. So photography basics. Uh, the zone system pretty much is uh, a combination of three factors. There is ISO, which is uh, your film speed. A lot of us are using digital cameras these days, so it's you know, that's just like a umbrella term, but I'm going to bring it back to film because uh, that's the root of everything. And I believe everyone should learn film. So there's ISO, which is your film speed. It's how reactive uh, your film is to light. Uh, then you have shutter speed, which is how quickly the shutter releases, how much light is let in in a given moment. Um, and then you have your f-stop, which is pretty much your pupil. It's like how wide do you want to dilate the lens? And so when you take an image, it says dance between all three of these factors. And, uh, you know, to really be fluent in photography, it just comes naturally. You don't even think about it. But the process of, you know, understanding the balance between all these two, if you change your f-stop, then you're, you know, you, uh, you might need to change your ISO. So, um, I remember getting quizzed all the time at the dinner table as a little kid being like, dad, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to figure out what stop to put it at. I'm so grateful. In retrospect. In retrospect, I'm so grateful for those conversations and, uh, learning the technical aspects of photography. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really thankful that I, I learned in film Yeah, and not everyone needs to pick up a film camera and learn that way. You can do trial and error you know, go down the local camera shop and get a digital camera and, and learn by that. But I think having the basis of understanding the roots of photography and 
understanding that that da- the dance between all three of the you know ISO and and um, f stop and shutter, I think uh, I think it really adds to your level of photography and and just the conscious act of pressing the shutter to make an image. Right, and you picked up you picked up a camera at a very young age. Yes, and then. Uh, you decide that that's what you want to do from junior high, high school? Yeah, so from an early age, I knew I wanted to be a photographer. I I went down a couple of different routes. I went to art school at Pratt in Brooklyn. I thought I wanted to go the art photography route, and I'm grateful for that experience, but I'm a proud art school dropout. I decided I wanted to... Congratulations. <laughs> all, all, all the great ones are. I, I decided I wanna, wanted to have a little bit more depth to my work. I always knew I wanted to be involved in the environment and the outdoors. And, and you so, didn't feel like you were getting that there? No, because it was more, um, it was more conceptual, and also... also I've been shooting film since I was eight and a lot of my peers that I was in school with had never even been in a dark room. So not that it was, it wasn't challenging to me, but I, I thought that I could add more to my future career by getting a degree in environmental studies. Right. You're ready to hit the ra- hit the ground running exactly. and you kind of knew what you wanted to do already. So I ran off to the mountains and uh, I did a double major in Montana State University in environmental studies and photography. And, uh, learned a ton about the environment. I did research in Mali and Africa and what uh, kind of what kind of research in Mali? What? It was I, on cultural preservation. So, I worked with um uh, a small village just outside of Bamako, this little teeny tiny village, mud huts full Nat Geo style, and uh worked with the village elders about methods to preserve some of their uh traditions of storytelling. A lot of the kids cell phones are just starting to get in, uh introduced into this village. And so they're trying to figure out a way to holistically keep children interested in some of these traditions, which are all oral. Right. So I worked with the the members of the community and we came up with uh, a method of having the children illustrate some of these stories, the school children in the schools. And then we published a book. So not only would they learn French and their traditional language of Bambara, uh, while reading these stories, but they also illustrated them. So it was a full-on interactive. The kids were part of it. The teachers were part of it. And now there's a book that's in these schools in this little town called Tanambale. And these are stories about their cultural heritage. Yes, exactly. So that was a fun, absolutely fun project. And I really loved working with these people because it wasn't, when you're talking about going into a culture and, and helping people, you they need to help themselves. Right. Like they came to us. So I just helped facilitate yeah. that. And uh, what are you talking about? Nothing bad ever came from white people going <laughs> into an indigenous village and oh, saying, bullshit. we know what's right for you. Bullshit. Yeah. So it was really, it was really fun and fascinating to be able to work with these village elders and, and come up with solutions together. And what I really came away with at the end of the day too, I remember sitting down in this little mud hut, all of us around in a circle and they were saying how grateful they are that they can help me and help change my perspective as much as I am grateful for helping them. It was like, it was both ways. Right. I learned so much from them. Yeah. I think that a lot of indigenous cultures, I mean, I obviously don't want to speak for a lot of indigenous cultures, but I think that there is an acknowledgement that the, the West lacks respect in regards to um, the 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 reverence of culture the and and uh, the attaining a reverence for um 
where we've come from. Mm-hmm. You know, I like I think that, that there is this um, this feeling in the West where more is better. The next thing is better. Let's forget the past generation. And we move away some from some aspects of culture that are very human, like being around a fire with a few friends telling a story. Yes. And storytelling is huge in these small villages of Mali. And we've seemed to have lost that in our current culture. We definitely have. We don't have the time for our elders. We actually dispose of them when they get to a certain age and put them in nursing homes. It's the opposite in these communities. The village elders are the storytellers. They're the ones that keep the flame alive. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize that and to appreciate it and celebrate it. Older folks are amazing. One of my favorite things to do, my grandmother passed away about a year ago. One of my favorite things to do would be to get stoned and go over to my grandmother's <laughs> house and just have her tell me stories for like two hours. Because yeah. w- if I if I wasn't in a rush, then it would be great. Because, you know, it would take her a little bit more time to, you know, get the story out about what it was like, you know, going in horse and carriage from Missouri <laughs> to Los Angeles to be farmers. That's how my family originally made it over to California. Wow. holy shit wow this is amazing i think that the cool thing about that is you like a lot of times um at least for me personally like i'm realizing how unoriginal i actually am like my (laughs) both of my grandparents were naturalists they were outdoors people and to hear some of their stories um it just makes me feel more like at home in myself a little bit Hmm. like i'm following some kind of lineage that feels good well Honestly, in my perspective, I think the whole point in life is to be able to tell good stories. I mean, to live a life that's worth sharing and to, to collect these amazing tidbits of facts and, and, and insights throughout your life. I mean, that's wisdom. And honestly, whatever your platform is, whether it's social media, whether you're writing a book, doing podcasts, I think there's ways to communicate and tell stories. And I think that's the, the whole purpose of life is to communicate with each other and to share those moments. And so honestly, I've, I've dedicated my career to telling stories about the environment and to working with brands and environmental initiatives to showcase what's happening real time, not just hypothetically in the future, what's happening real time to our planet and also celebrate progress. So I think there's a real, a real hole today in the environmental movement. And what kind of hole? I think we just need to focus on the progress we've made. I really do. I think showcasing the small steps in the right direction is huge. You know, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, and I agree, shit is fucked. You know, our generation's gonna see it and is starting to see it. Our kids are definitely gonna see it. You know, it's, but if you're trying to get people involved in the environmental movement, per se, You need to encourage them that there is a possibility that their energy can make an actual difference. Right. So what's an example of a step forward that you've seen? Step forward in the right direction. Let me get my notes on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there, I think that a lot of what we're talking about is about keeping score, right? And it's about looking at those small wins. Um, And a lot of times it can like even getting involved can seem too audacious and that breeds apathy. So people are like, yeah, whatever. I don't even care about it. Um, But 
as if we do keep score and if we look for these bright spots within communities around the world who are whatever taking control of their water supply mm-hmm. or banning plastic bags and bottles or uh, taking control of their natural resources in some way, those models can be replicated in other ways. And I think that those kinds of stories are, are really important for a- people to hear. Absolutely. I just uh, finished a shoot with Cliff Bar last week. I just finished a shoot with Cliff Bar last week. We were uh, documenting a small urban farm in one of the worst communities in Oakland, most dangerous communities in the country. And it was so inspiring to see this organization encouraging children to get outside. There's a farm right in the middle of this community. There were projects around. It's a very dangerous area. But this is a safe haven for kids to come after school, to get their hands dirty, to learn about where their food's coming from. I think that is something worth celebrating. And honestly, I'm thrilled to be working with with Cliff Bar and, and brands that are willing to showcase these stories because this is what it's all about. You know, look what's happening in our country right now. There's so much hatred. There's so much hatred that's coming out of the woodwork. And to be able to showcase progress and showcase these glimmers of hope in some of these urban environments, we're all the same underneath it all, you know? To be able to see kids having fun outside, you know, being able to pick a carrot out of the ground and realize this is what, you can eat this. I grew this, I can eat this. I mean, these kids, a lot of them coming into this don't know what a potato looks like. So being able to connect with their food, connect with their environment, I mean, that is huge. You ever like fuck with them and like show them a strawberry and be like, this is a potato. (laughs) No, that would be such a dick (laughs) thing to do. No, it was actually really, really cute when I came in. um, I came in a day early to scout and uh, I was walking around the farm. I'd just gotten off the off the plane out of my Uber and I'm poking through uh, the basil patch and the strawberry patch. And I look up and there's this cute little girl with this huge afro. She's just this fiery ball of energy she runs up to me she has no idea who I am I'm just some chick wandering through the garden in her community and uh she's like hi my name's heaven what are you doing out here I'm like oh you know I explained to her what we're doing with cliff bar and and taking photos of this really great place for kids to get outside and she's like well let me give you a tour so she gets she is the one of the girls in the community that comes in and volunteers her time mind you I think she must have been 10 if that uh, she volunteers her time to go water these plants and and see them grow from little seeds up to something that they can harvest. And uh, she took me through the basil and the tomatoes. And I mean, I, I thought that was so cool. Yeah. I, and and honestly, I'm I'm more inspired than by that moment, that connection than I have been with a lot of these huge big campaigns you know, that I, I've been a part of in, in other realms. So, uh, so, so what, bring me into a campaign like Cliff, like how will, um, a project like that happen and what's, um, what's your job, um, on a project like that? So I'm doing this series with Cliff Bar called Adventures for Good, and it's, uh, a series celebrating leaders in the sustainable food movement throughout the country. And so my job is to help tell the story of these people in all different backgrounds. There's there's a, a man who called named Bill Cavallo who started Wild Planet Foods, and he is a sustainable uh, fisherman. So there's sustainable fisheries that we're celebrating. There's these urban farms bringing kids outside and learning where their food comes from. There's uh, 
um, uh, I'm losing my train of thought here. There's so many. There's ten. Yeah. Of them. So so on a job, are you hired to be a photographer, or are you hired to be like? Because you kind of like like you're a photographer, but you're also a personality. Yes, I'm definitely. In, in a little bit, like I, I don't know really how to define what it is that you do, but like, what are the assets that you guarantee a company like Cliff uh, when you go to work for them? I know this term has been being tossed around a lot these days, storyteller. But I, I think that really is, is what I am. I'm a photographer, but I tell stories about people and, in, and that are really making a difference. Right. And so my job when I'm working with brands like Cliff Bar or, or um, uh, Patagonia or any of these outdoor brands, Prana, I'm a, story, I'm a storyteller. You know, I'm taking and celebrating these people through imagery and, and being able to tell a story through a single image is, is a challenge that I love. So bring me, bring me into that challenge. So like you go to the garden, you have your camera, you're trying to get some images that will be usable. What's like, bring me into the conversation inside your head. Well, inside my head, when I'm taking a photo and trying to, to tell a story about someone and their background, I try to really connect with them on a personal basis beforehand, whether it's a phone call or whether I, I do a little research into who they are. I try and see the world through their eyes and, and give them justice and, and give them, um, or give it, give their, uh, you know, just represent them honestly, I guess. Represent right. them honestly. Right? I try to be honest right. with what I take. A, photo- a photograph can be can manipulate a situation for sure for sure but with whatever I do I try and be I try and be just an honest clear representation yeah. of what they're all about right so did you take a photo of that girl heaven no I didn't but I shared her on my Instagram story cool if anyone was following along <laughs> yeah it's a big responsibility being whether it's photography or or documentary like you can lie really easily. You can. I mean, I've sat in the edit room many times where I could make you look any way that I want to. And there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust that's and, and pressure that's put on someone like yourself to represent people correctly. And sometimes it's a, it's a complicated story. It oftentimes it is a complicated story and I think it's really important to be honest and I also think because of that it's really important to stay educated and to have an educated perspective that's why I wound up getting that degree that's why I try and read as much as possible and talk to people in the environmental movement talk to activists talk to surfers talk to people in all realms of the outdoor industry and environmental industry if you if you right right. I think it's really important to have that perspective and to be able to be as true to whatever mission you're trying to help document yeah you're doing a cool project on the national park system right now tell me about that not national park not national parks but national National monuments Monuments. sorry yeah it's all good they're uh they're really obscure honestly because off uh, most of them especially the ones in California have uh just come about you know during the last Obama administration. So these places are new to uh, being protected. And I think it's really important that we f- we celebrate them and encourage people to get out and explore them because if people don't know about them, I, a lot of the ones, for instance, there are 27 monuments that were on the review, the review list, Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, um, 
had 27 national monuments on a list to potentially uh, reduce their bound boundaries and open them up for all sorts of th- yummy things like drilling and and harvesting of natural resource and everything. These are these are places that are for all Americans. So is, does a national monument uh, restrict resource extraction? Uh, is that the main thing that it does? It basically protects from resource extraction, correct? I am pretty sure, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so because of wanting to reduce these boundaries, okay. that would open it up to, like I said, drilling and privatization of these resources, which should be available for all Americans to enjoy and recreate right. in. Well, what's interesting is that it's actually not a partisan issue. No, like, not at all. Like we think of it as like a leftist issue for some reason that like Democrats want to uh, protect these national monuments. But George Bush designated the largest marine nas- uh, national monument in the history of the world. And then Obama, he like quadrupled it. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's an oceanographer for NOAA yesterday, and I was asking him about what the designation of a, a monument um, out in the Pacific Ocean allows his team to do. And he basically broke it down for me and said, like, look, it gives us precedent to go out there and do long-term studies on coral and on fish populations in a pristine environment. Because when you're looking at um, coral, for example, and you want to do a long-term study on the impacts, it's difficult enough to see all the, to try and distill all the environmental pressures that coral has without human impact, right? Like if you're trying to see what's killing coral and there's a golf course just up the road, um, it's really hard to say how much of it is climate change and how much of it is pesticides. But if you have these these super remote marine atolls like Jarvis out in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, it allows them to do these studies in places that really don't exist anywhere else in the world. Definitely. And that's the final frontier is the open ocean, honestly. And our oceans are in a sad, 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 sad state. So there's actually a few national monuments that are out to sea that are on that list as well and honestly these places granted those monuments they're not gonna you're not gonna be having people recreate in those but yet you're bringing it back to the partisan issue and it, people whether you're a hunter whether you like to go ATVing whether you're some granola crunchy crunchy um hiker whether you're a backpacker it, no matter what your political stance is being able to get outside and have those resources for yourself and for your friends and Wait, family. Wait, which one am I? Okay, I'm either, am I the hunter or am I the granola? <laughs> I you're granola crunchy hippie. I do have. Te- I mean, we're I both do, barefoot right now. I do have tevas. <laughs> you do have tevas. Yeah. I'm a keen girl, yeah. and uh, you know, I have my hunting <laughs> license, so I don't know what category you I do. fall into either. Yeah, um, I'm a, I'm barefoot right now. I have my hunting <laughs> license. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me, I didn't mean to detract from no, the project no. that you're that you're working on. That sounds interesting. So you're going to all of these marine, all of these monuments that are under review and showing how amazing they are. So I am going with pro skier Caroline Gleick. She and I have done some really great work in the past together around environmental initiatives. And what we're doing is we're going to a select few. California national monuments that are on the review list. A lot of these are very obscure. Caroline and I had never even heard of before, you know, hearing about uh, Secretary of the Interior's decision to potentially open these up for natural uh, natural resource extraction. So she and I are doing 
focusing on relatable adventures. These places are are natural, open areas for everyone. And I mean, we both do hardcore expeditions when we're in the backcountry for days on end. We're going to the far corners of the globe to chase powder and, and snow and ice. But that's not going to encourage people to get outside and caring about these natural areas. We want to show that you can go from L.A., hop in the car with your friends, go out to this national monument. Uh, Santa Snow is one of them just outside of L.A., and enjoy these natural places that are, are literally for us all. They're, this isn't just for extreme athletes or, or, or people that are into the environment. I mean, you, you can go hop in the car after work, get outside, go camping, go on a trail, uh, go car camping. You don't even have to have a tent. I mean, I am all about encouraging the every person, all of us, to enjoy these natural spaces natural places and the more people we get outside the more people will care about protecting them so you're saying that all these national monuments belong to us what do you mean by that they're set aside and designated for people like you and me to enjoy and it shouldn't be reserved for a select few elite athletes and i think the outdoor industry could do a little bit better of a job as a whole encouraging people to do micro adventures. I'm all about the micro adventure. I'm all about micro dosing. (laughs) You know, you could micro dose while micro adventuring, (laughs) which would be great fun. It would be great fun. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I hear you though. (laughs) Like making it so like, you know, in reality, like a big thing that changed my, uh, the amount that I camped was just having a box set aside where I could throw all that shit in my car and go camping rather than having to be like, ah, oh, where's my jet boil? Nah, who has, who has my tent? Who'd I lend my tent to? <laughs> right. But like having that little setup box has allowed me to just be like, Oh yeah, great. Let's go to Yosemite tomorrow for two days. Boom. And we're going to fill up on nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter where you are in the country, there's outdoor places that are within a short driving distance to wherever you're located. I mean, I'm in, I'm in Venice. I'm in, you know, I'm amongst all this concrete and just a quick jump in the car. I can be up in the Santa Monica mountains. I can drive out to Mammoth. I can go to the San Gabriel mountains. There are so many small little day trips that are right at our disposal. And the sad thing to me, just moving to LA, the trails around here are quiet. Oh my God. I mean, compared to Colorado or Salt Lake City where trails right near the downtown are so packed, the ones around LA are quiet, which is kind of nice. Yeah. You know, I'm selfishly enjoying that. Except you're blowing it up right now. Come on. I'm so blowing it up. (laughs) Get outside, everyone. If you're in LA. Get get inside. Don't go go outside. Go go microdose and micro adventure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think the world would be a much better place. Oh, I do too. I do too. Mm -hmm. I think that like... I mean, we, I mean, I don't know if we're talking about micro adventuring or micro dosing. I think that the, <laughs> I think the world would be a much better place if we did both. And I mean, if you look at the new research that's coming out uh, around people who use micro dosing, uh, to get off of it to in, um, uh, instead of doing antidepressants, it's like insane how effective it is. Dr. Jim Fadiman just came out with this new study with like 1500, uh, people, um, mushrooms are in phase three trials right now at at John Hopkins, uh, university. Like it's moving forward in a way where the taboo around like, Oh, you do mushrooms. You must be a hippie and, you know, intellectually lazy. Like those days are coming to a close. And I think that it's 
we are going to be judged very harshly on the fact that right now we have an administration that's tightening up drug laws um, and and specifically one that can really help people who are suffering from depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you uh, have a podcast about that. I'm going to have to listen to it. I do. Yeah. Dr. Jim Fadiman, he, he actually grew up or I mean, I, I grew up just down the street from him and he, he wrote a book called The Psych- Psychedelic Explorer's Guide and uh, a fascinating human like he's like 85 years old and sharp as a tack an absolute sage yeah well i think that he's he's tackling bold issues you know that it's it's important to give the microphone to people who make uh society uncomfortable for one reason or another and um i think that that psychedelics are one that are quickly turning the corner especially when we're seeing how many uh silicon valley ceos are using mushrooms to problem solve no it's true i think it's really important to stay uncomfortable because you're not going to experience progress unless you're pushed and unless you're pushing yourself you really won't um being uncomfortable is is challenging yourself it's learning i i think the second you start being comfortable is when you need to shake shit up yeah so it's uh it's really inspiring too like bringing it back to working with some big brands that are historically really dirty. I mean, fashion for one. Fashion's one of the largest industries in the entire world, and it's also one of the dirtiest. The amount of pollution that goes into our planet every year is astonishing and is disgusting. And uh, brands like H&M are at the forefront of that. They really are. They are dirty. Fast fashion, like this disposable clothing industry, is gnarly. Like, it's terrible. Why? Because it's consuming so many resources and also too, just on a consumer standpoint, being just being the mindset to go out and buy a t-shirt to only wear it a couple of times before, you know, tossing it or giving it away. I mean, that, that piece of clothing doesn't just disappear and think about the supply chain behind that. There's a lot that that's a, that, that's a heavy carbon footprint for just some, you know, quick look that you're, you're over, you know, over and done with, uh, you know, the next week. So, uh, it's really interesting to see brands like H and M start to dive into the environmental movement. And I think celebrating that even as dirty as they are, and it's terrible as some of their practices are being able to celebrate that progress. I mean, for instance, H and M, I got invited to, uh, the the H&M launch this past fall of their eco-conscious line. They've had it for a few years now. And it's uh, a line of sustainably sourced and made clothing. And being able to celebrate that, I mean, having a big house, a fashion house, a fast fashion like H&M, you know, go into uh, fashion and try to come up with ways to make their practices greener. As a consumer, we should celebrate that. We have a lot of power with our dollar. Companies will follow where the money is. Honestly, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, at H&M that are wanting to be greener, but they have big investors behind them, and making a big brand like that change, it takes a lot of time. But where we, you and me have the power is, is purchasing power or avoiding power. We can also decide not to purchase something. Yeah. So I think being able to help celebrate brands like that going against what they're about to be greener. I think that's 
that's something we should do. Yeah, but how do we celebrate it correctly? Because it's, it's, like clearly it's not enough to do what a lot of these companies are doing. Like it's not going to actually shift the tide to do what Arrowhead does where they're like, we make smaller plastic caps. <laughs> that means that they like have this stupid campaign where they say smaller caps equal less plastic. Yep. The whole fucking bottle is made out of plastic. I know. And the cap is made out of plastic. I, I think there's a Like, very- how stupid do you think <laughs> we are? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I think there's, for one, uh, it's a fine line to tread to be greenwashing, uh, like uh, with campaigns especially. There's a fine line to, to tread to celebrate progress and also be labeling a company that's not green as green. Also, too... The reason why Arrowhead is still in business is because there's consumer demand for it. So there also needs to be education on the consumer side. If people stopped buying water bottles, you know, there wouldn't be as much of a problem there. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think we need to educate the consumer, let the consumer know that we have power, that our money and our support is is powerful. And also to, yeah, celebrate progress for sure, but also don't greenwash. Right. Like it's it's not enough. It's a step, a small step in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, to your point, the most of the environmental impacts hit a product before you see it. It's all in the supply chain. And when we can shift the supply chain, whether it's a company getting involved with Fair Trade USA or shifting their manufacturing or setting precedent. Um, like one company that I'm a big fan of is uh, Dr. Bronner's. Mm-hmm. They got off of palm oil and it took them, it was a really expensive process for them to do it because all of the palm oil manufacturing systems were set up. Uh, but Palm for, yeah, for people Ugh. for people who don't know, I mean, they basically just burn down. It, industry burns down rainforest to monocrop palm, and it uh, it destroys orangutan environment. Um, and it's it's happening in this very narrow belt where palm oil is produced because it needs a very uh, specific temperature. So it happens in um, I believe it's Borneo, Mo- Borneo, and Indonesia are the two main spots. And and Dr. Brana's opted out of that and they they set a new precedent that allowed other companies to follow mm-hmm. which so it's like hell yeah for people for for companies that are willing to take that stance and do some of the heavy lifting initially um that allows the rest of the industry to follow i agree and i think steps like that in the right direction it, they can snowball and that's the whole point it's to it's to make things like that go viral right and to encourage other brands you know like this is possible yeah like your return might not be as much initially but in the grand scheme of things like our our planet's health is more important and honestly too you know when you're talking about big business keeping our planet healthy and, and, and keeping these systems running is going to affect businesses across the world. Climate change is, is not going to help any of our businesses besides yeah. some of the disaster relief ones, honestly. Well, some, some will in like areas like Siberia, like well, they're, yeah. they're probably psyched on climate change. It's going to yeah, be a little well, bit except warmer. Except for the anthrax outbreaks. <laughs> What's that? Oh, what, okay. what, I don't know about this. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of gnarly. Like there's, there's been anthrax outbreaks in Siberia because, uh, a lot of these reindeer that have been killed um, in the past from anthrax outbreaks are defrosting and reinfecting other reindeer and reindeer herders. So Whoa. it's actually 
kind of trippy and t- very terrifying that pathogens that have been in m- history of mankind or even before mankind could be introduced or reintroduced to the world and we have nothing within our bodies to to fight that that could be the end of us right there yeah also there's a shitload of methane gas stored underneath the permafrost there ah! that's being released i thought you're supposed to be the optimist <laughs> Focus on progress. Focus yeah. on progress. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree that I, I think that the framing of of making an argument that we should um, shift our energy systems and our supply chains to be have a less of an environmental impact um, f- to combat climate change is actually the incorrect argument to use. I think that it's a, a stronger argument to go at it and say. We just want cleaner air. We want mm-hmm. less pollution. Who yep. like who doesn't want cleaner skies? And that's who a do, human right for all. That's a human right for all. And who doesn't want more jobs? I mean, like the idea. I'm just going to go on a quick little rant here. But but the idea that Trump is trying to save seventy five thousand coal jobs, and this isn't even like seventy five thousand coal miners. This is everyone in the coal industry. Like the accountant is part of this number. Rather than the 500,000 jobs in the solar sector in California alone. And he, and he could be making the same argument about, like, we want to keep jobs. We want to bring jobs back by going for solar. Yep. No, I know. Instead, I mean, <laughs> you have Elon Musk who had to quit the advisory board because he was too embarrassed to be associated with Trump's energy policy. It is embarrassing. It's super embarrassing. And it just doesn't, I like, I don't, I don't get it because he could be making the same point by moving towards, uh, solar. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And no, another really fascinating source for, uh, jobs across the the country, the outdoor industry. Do you know it's an $887 billion industry? Per year. So how does that, how do you factor that number? Like, so that's, that, that's all, all the companies and all of the national park systems. Think about the infrastructure surrounding the outdoor world. Think about Lake Tahoe. Tahoe would, the local economies of Tahoe would not be there if there wasn't hiking, if there wasn't ski tourism. That really, outdoor activities and adventures keep Tahoe alive. Right. I th- Honestly, the outdoor industry has sway. I mean, that's that's a shitload of money right there. Yeah. So, you, so you're factoring in restaurant. Are you factoring in restaurant jobs and all of this kind of stuff into this number? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And it, honestly, it's it's around 7.6 million American jobs. So when you're talking about keeping jobs here and keeping people happy, people keeping people outside. I mean, for one, outdoor industry has sway. I mean, that's that's power right there. Look at what. Uh, Look what we've done as a community. I'm, I'm saying we because I am a member of the outdoor community. Uh, look what we've done with outdoor retailer in Utah most recently. Utah has been holding the outdoor retailer convention for the past, God, 20-something years. And because of Utah's stance on uh, public lands, mainly Bears Ears National Monument, there's been a huge campaign with Patagonia about preserving these tribal lands for climbers and um, and. Uh, you know, of course, the Native Americans who these are sacred, sacred places because um, the governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, was all for keeping them on that review list. We've pulled out. 
we've pulled out of outdoor retailer in Utah and we brought it to Denver. Wait, so so outdoor retailer was in support of um, eliminating bears ears or down, no, no, or no, no, downsiding. No. Outdoor is that, retailer is is it, is outdoor retailer a company? No, well, outdoor retailers are a big convention every year, twice a year okay. for the outdoor industry. Okay, and so realizing that not only are we an eight hundred and eighty-seven billion dollar industry we have 7.7 7.6 million jobs uh a part of our community you know having open places set aside for us all is is hugely important i mean that's what ke- that's what's keeping all of these outdoor businesses alive and well is having places that people can recreate and so because of uh Governor Gary Herbert's stance on public lands and putting them or allowing them to be on the rear view list. Uh, the they out, pulled out. They so, pulled out. Oh, so they moved to a different state. And they so, moved to so, Colorado and that is going to reduce. Um, I think it's a, I think it's like 400, sorry, it's a $45 million impact. So $45 million a year is going to be taken out of Utah and given to uh, Colorado now. Wow, good for them. So, God damn it, Colorado doesn't need any more money. I know, with all the weed. <laughs> oh, man. So, anyway. For, well, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that, look, it, it, we are in a time right now where governmental agencies like the AP, EPA are getting gutted. So, it's falling back on consumers and it's falling back on businesses and it's falling back on nonprofits mm-hmm. to take the stance of governmental organizations that, that were set up to protect the environment. And you're seeing it happen all over the, all over the place. And look at Patagonia. Yeah. I mean, Patagonia has been leading the charge for, for decades now, but with the national monuments, they've been really on the forefront, especially Bears Ears. They've also, they're a huge reason why Outdoor real, Retailer pulled out as well. They were campaigning. campaigning for the protection of bears ears and very very verbal they're on um also social media platforms on facebook on instagram getting people involved getting the average person you know interested and excited about using their voice and making it accessible i think it's really important to make being an activist accessible because you can write a quick email you can write a letter you can you can send a text message they're listening. Yeah. You know, I called uh, I called Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke's office uh, f- like a month ago, and I spoke directly with his secretary, and she said, we're listening to every phone call that comes in. We're listening to every email. We're looking at everything. People are listening, and, and the more people you can get involved and make it make it less intimidating to get involved and use your voice, I, I think that's, I think we need to celebrate that, and we need to encourage it. Yeah. So what's next for you? What's next? continuing what I'm doing man just going surfing getting in the water every day and uh continuing using my platforms whether it's my social media presence or or campaigns with brands to to help um showcase movement in the right direction and honestly it's been interesting seeing food and food security and the future of food in our country keep coming back to me. I mean, I'm a closet foodie. I love food. I'm also like a glutard. Uh, here, cheers to all you other glutards out there. I feel your pain, but food is really important to me. And I try and buy local. I try and, you know, cook as much as possible, which is really hard when you travel all the time. But I've been realizing that healthy food and organic food especially like looking at all these grocery stores in LA, like Erewhon. Oh my God, I love Erewhon. <laughs> oh my God, it's it's heaven. It's dangerous though. It's so expensive. But why why is healthy food 
so fucking expensive. It's because our government subsidizes corn and soy products. And when you're trying to think about the health of our country and the organic movement and food movement, honestly, it's like healthy food should be for everyone. It shouldn't be a matter of your income. And honestly, too, I uh, I don't know if any of you know the book called Drawdown, but it's a really comprehensive guide as to what actually can make a difference with carbon emissions and, and climate change. The number one thing that as individuals we can do to reduce our footprint and to directly affect, you know, the future of our planet, it's, it's not what you think. It's not flying less. It's not, you know, carpooling, changing your light bulbs. It's changing your diet. Food is huge. What you choose to put, you know, feed your kids or to put in your mouth and like, that's fuel for your body. I mean, that has huge impact. I mean, if cattle were their own nation, they'd be the third largest contributor to global emissions. I mean, that's huge. That's a wild stat. Wow. Yeah. Wild in that book, draw down. Everyone should read it. Um, but anyway, like, so because, so if, if food is the number one thing that as you and me and everyone in this country and world can, can do like changing what we eat and where we, we source our food, that's our number one thing we can do to, to help our planet. I mean, why is healthy food something that's kind of reserved for the rich? Honestly, like that's why, you know, showcasing and celebrating small scale urban farms in the inner city Oakland. That's what, that's why that's important. That's why it's important to get inner city kids who don't know what a potato looks like to get stoked out on farming and getting dirt under their fingernails. I mean, food is huge. Little heaven. Little giving, s- giving you a tour around an urban garden. Little heaven. She's cool. a sweetheart. Well, thanks for taking the time. Where can people find you? Um, they can find me on Instagram. I'm going to do a little Instagram name drop. Sure. At Meg underscore Haywood Sullivan. Right. Boom. Find me. Uh, feel free to message me, nerd out. You know, I'm I'm definitely there to bounce ideas off of, and I, I dork out on on all sorts of convos. I also enjoy debate. So whether you agree with me or not, let's debate and hash it out. It's kind of fun. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Let's go surf. Sounds good. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, be sure to get in touch with Meg on Instagram. You can also get in touch with me on the Insta or on my website, Kyle.surf. I'm going to leave you with a song called Mermaid Legs by the Getaway Dogs, and I will link to their band page underneath Meg's profile on my website. If you are a musician and you want your tunes played at the end of my podcast, get in touch with me. I hope you're all having a beautiful day, and I'll see you soon.
stepped on cracks and broke my baby's back one day and mermaid's legs she grew Thank you. 